This episode of the Ruminum Podcast is sponsored in part by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com This episode is also supported by the Small Scale Meat Producers Association of British Columbia, dedicated to voicing the needs and concerns of small-scale meat producers in the province of BC. For more info, check out smallscalemeat.ca. Finally, this episode is supported by the Ruminants Future Episode Generation Initiative. Stay tuned later in the episode to hear more about some upcoming episode ideas and how you can play a part in contributing to them. This is The Ruminant, a podcast about food politics and food security and the cultural and practical aspects of farming. You can find out more at theruminant.ca, email me, editor at theruminant.ca, and you can find me on Twitter, at Ruminant Blog, or search for The Ruminant on Facebook. All right, let's do a show. Javin. Hello. How you doing, Jordan? I'm well. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, I guess. Hey, I folks. This is Jordan. You're hearing the voice of Javin Kirby Bernakovich, an expert in ecological design and restoration, which you can learn more about at allpointsdesign.ca. If you recognize his voice, it may be because he's been on the show before to talk about farmer mental health. This time around, I had another topic I hope to discuss with him. Um, Javin, you don't entirely know why I've asked you on the show today. You know that I am in the midst of producing an episode that uh, I am calling Farming is Gay. (laughs) I do. I know that much. And uh, you are a gay man. That's correct. Yes? It it is still correct. All right. Just making sure. (laughs) Um, I called you on to... uh, ask you if you remember when you first told me uh you're gay oh mate i don't that uh that memory no longer exists it must have made room for things about fire or something else (laughs) well i never forgot it (laughs) and i wanted to i wanted to quickly talk about it as an introduction to today's show let's do it we, we, the first chance we really had an opportunity to get to know each other and chat was at one of the Permaculture Voices conferences, one of them in San Diego. But here's what I remember. Okay. We were sitting in the lobby of the hotel of the conference. Yeah. And it yeah. was like toward the end of the conference. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I bought us a round of beers and then we got chatting. It was in the lobby. And then like I asked you one of the inevitable getting to know you questions. And I said, so do you have a girlfriend? You've probably been asked that before. See if you can remember what you would have said to me when I said, do you have a girlfriend? Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Did I say no, but I have a boyfriend? Something you, like that? Yeah, you said something along those lines. And what's so funny to me, and the re, like I, it really caught me off guard. So I just, I mean, and why, why should I have, have necessarily thought you were gay? I had, I had no reason to. But I was immediately, and this is all happening in like a millisecond in my brain, keep in mind. I just was immediately so, uh, I was just so embarrassed that I didn't, I didn't say like, do you have a significant other? You know what I mean? Like keep it, uh, keep it more general. I was immediately so embarrassed, but, um, you, you, you said you don't remember the interaction. So I'll have to remind you that, um, (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I'll tell you what, because you, you've given the answer that you would have given that I remember you giving, let's just go through it. I really just wanted you to, to remind you uh, and the listeners um, what my reaction to your reaction was. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. That has been cemented in my mind that I've never forgotten about. So okay. you and I are having beer right now. Um, and then we were chit-chatting and then I say, so Javin, do you have a girlfriend? And I say, no, but I have a boyfriend. Oh, <laughs> that was my reaction, which was, um, which was my terrible, awkward version of like, be cool, be cool, be cool. Like just be cool. Um, <laughs> And which I then immediately was so much more embarrassed about. You maybe didn't even notice it or were just polite enough not to make a big deal. But um, I was just very embarrassed that I made that assumption about you. Um, and I just thought it'd be fun to rehash that. Uh, now that you've I've told you that, if you if you still can't remember the conversation, have you I mean, have you had conversations like that? Like how often does like an awkward oafish guy like me? kind of kind of create that make that you know uh wrong assumption about you oh uh yeah across the board there's and, and you know this is supposed to be lighthearted, so i'm gonna try and keep it as lighthearted as possible but societal stereotypes being what they are and all of those lovely like 40s 50s and 60s the homosexual <laughs> given to us by the amazing u.s government it it paints a different picture and it says that uh, if you like or are attracted to the person of the same sex, then you have certain stereotypical affectations that would mean that that would be true. And we're affected by by what we're grown up through, right? It's the environment and the people and all the rest of it create programmings and beliefs and structures and parts of ourselves. So my thing is I would never... I would never fault somebody else for something that I could potentially fall into myself. Mm -hmm. Just because just because you're of a, a certain sexuality doesn't mean you're not going to also be in a place where you would automatically place somebody because we do. We make we make split microsec second judgments of people and nine times out of 10 they turn out to be wrong. I think it's like anything. It's what you do with it after you find out. Are you that super awkward person who's like, "Oh, I have to reconsider everything." about the relationship or the tentative relationship we have, et cetera, et cetera, which some people do. And that's really awkward for a long time. Or do you just like, Oh, I didn't know. Cool. Uh, uh, what's the boyfriend like? What's he like? How are you? And, and I think a lot of people, this was funny. I, uh, I was at my brother's bachelor party a year ago and it's kind of like being a unicorn. There was a bunch of, uh, just a bunch of guys and they're like, Oh, so you're Aaron's gay brother. I'm like, well, I'm his brother. And I, happen to be gay i don't think there's any other brothers <laughs> uh nor do i think the opposite might be true and it was so fascinating because there was just a barrage of questions there was a bunch of like i've never met a gay person before a gay man before that i could talk to and feel comfortable talking to can i ask you some questions i'm like sure and we had these very in-depth questions about what it's like to date and other things uh, as it pertains to being a, a gay dude and uh it was really funny it was just oh, it was just really childish not childish, but from a childlike mind of, oh, I don't know about that. Let's talk about it. And that's, those are some of the most coolest moments because you get to educate people really about a very recent experience. Cause I had only, I only at that point probably had come out three or four years now, seven. Um, so that's the cool thing about it is that it's not a big deal. If somebody makes a misstep, it's just, what do you do afterward? That said, 
that's because of hundreds and thousands and probably millions of men and women who have gone before who really had it tough, mm-hmm. who had mm-hmm. to sneak, who had to be incredibly ashamed, who built incredible neuroses and uh, and issues around it and were incredibly courageous. And some died for being who they were and paved the way for a relatively easy situation that I have today that I, you know, I still feel like there are issues and I have issues with and have to contend with things. But uh, that's all built on the shoulders of some incredible giants. So Javin, I didn't, I, I didn't talk to you about what this conversation was going to be about today. And so, but I'd like to try, I'd like to put you on the spot if you don't mind. This, this episode is, is about farmers who are also part of the LGBT community. Right. Uh, and I'm exploring or asking members of that community to explore the intersectionality between their farming identity and their queer identity. And okay. I'm just now you're not a hundred you're not a, a full-time farmer. You wear many hats, but but and a farming a farmer hat is one of those hats that you you have worn and you you pro, you you still do wear sometimes. I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm just wondering if like when when I ask you about how these two parts of you intersect, if anything comes to mind, positive or negative. Sure. Um, well, first and foremost, I did wear uh, the farming hat for a very short amount of time. I ran a small microgreens company called Eat Shoots and Leaves in Victoria back what feels like many years ago, probably close to when I met you, or, and we had our beer, I mean. And uh, and I would say the intersectionality of that played zero, played zero issue. Uh, it didn't really change anything. Um, the Since then, I've... I've done some homesteading. I've helped other people farm. I've definitely haven't been on the, the top of the bill on the farm, so to speak. Um, help people farm internationally, helped with that. And there is some interesting intersectionality. I worked in Kenya and Cuba or Kenya and Uganda. And being gay in Kenya is not what you would call a, a very favorable outcome. Um, they were and had passed a number of laws about uh, jailing and potentially stoning gays on the spot. But yet, the Kenyan uh, tourist man, uh, manager, minister, put out this amazing, gay tourists are welcome to Kenya, which I always thought was really interesting and probably showed a lot of their, their confliction internally as a, as a government. Um, so that was interesting because I went with a wedding ring and I went with like a fictitious woman in my phone that I could show people who I was quote unquote married to because it's one of those things where you don't necessarily want to die in another country while you're trying to help them catch and store rainwater. Yeah. No kidding. Build nursery. It just seems like a bad end to that story. So I was just very conscious that that didn't need to be a big part of the story. And then when I went to Uganda, which is even worse in terms of the condition that um, queer folk have to live under there, I was even more aware. And I shared very little about myself. And I imagine I came off very stiff and very, um, just very unable to connect with people, which was really heartbreaking to me because the place we worked had one of the highest HIV infection rates uh, of the entire country. And the school we helped and installed the food system at was uh, looked like it was bombed out. And uh, uh, it was it was a really incredible experience. Um, so, you know, those are some of the moments where I've had some intersectionality about where, let's call it, being gay or being queer was relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, I've found that I was invited to work at a project in Ecuador, 
And then after I said, great, um, you know, when is it? I think I'm going to ask my, my fiance, hubby to be, as we like to say, um, I want to know when he can come down. And they were like, we won't require your services. And then asking through an indirect channel, I found out that, uh, that was a big problem. That's what I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. And then since then, um, it hasn't really come up and, you know, how many times do we offer up all the things about our lives to our professional conversations? Very little. So Javin, you gave a number of really, really great examples, uh, on this topic. I'm just going to choose one. I just want to have one follow-up question about one of them. You talked about making a submission or, or it was an invitation, one of the two to, to, to a project in, I believe you said Ecuador. Mm. Uh, and then you, 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 you made, you implied, uh, you were gay, uh, and, and, and you, you think that's the reason they withdrew the invitation or rejected your application, whichever the case may be. I'm just wondering, like, how did that make you feel? What was that? What was your reaction to that? I mean, it's easy enough for us all to say things like, uh, oh, you just gotta, you know, they're the ridiculous ones, let it roll off your back. But did you, or, or is that really hard to hear and to experience? Well, you're asking a fundamental question about humanity. Is it hard to hear that because of who you are, in essence, you are not welcome? Of course it is. Uh, be it sexuality, ethnicity, disability, ability, capability, uh, gender, sex, hair color, y you name it. It's, it's a shitty thing to hear that you are not welcome because of who you are. And so I thought about it rationally, and it was just... There's no way I would want to work with these people. If they feel that way about folks who are a certain sexual persuasion, there are other pieces that are going to come out. There are other skeletons in the closet, and and uh, I'm going to have to really deal with those things. So I've dodged a huge bullet. I was super grateful to be invited, and it felt really incredible. But uh, okay, onwards and. And that's the most important thing about all of this, Whom, whomever you are, whatever persuasion you are, is there are going to be moments, there's going to be situations where you're not welcome and, you know, feel that completely, but then take as much responsibility for that as you can, because that's where the freedom comes afterwards to go, cool, I wasn't invited. And what does that mean? What's the message in that? What part of me really want to be invited? What part of me is really excited to not be invited? And now what do I want to do with it? And in some cases, it's a bit of um, paying the dues to the club that, again, as I've talked about, many incredible men and women have gone through. Um, and, and those yet to be decided, as that incredible musical likes to say. Um, so it was a bit of paying the dues, finally paying the ticket, uh, because there's lots of people who've gone through that. And then it was, okay, what do I want to do with this now? And it was, I want to understand it. I want to feel the frustration of that. And uh, I'd like to move on because there's lots more good times coming. And uh, if it doesn't include these people who are hyper prejudicial and uh, very close minded or narrow minded or potentially suffering from their own trauma, from their the use or their past or they they're in a situation where they themselves are closeted and they have to outwardly shun everybody else. then they're obviously dealing with things and levels of understanding that I, I couldn't possibly understand unless we had a conversation, they could be vulnerable, which is probably not going to happen. Mm. So thanks. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll see you on the flip side. Well, that was well said, Javin. So listen, man, thank you. Thank you for coming on to help introduce this episode. Thank you for sharing a little bit of your perspective on this topic. And 
Thank you for handling my social gaffe so well uh, back when I I made a bad assumption about you uh, that many years ago. I, I, I really, um, I was grateful for it at the time. I'm grateful for it now. Uh, you're most welcome, Jordan. And again, to you and anybody else, it's it's not the guffaw that matters. It's what you do with it. And, you know, we're all just trying to navigate. And if we navigate with compassion and we navigate with uh, a hard open situation, I think we'll navigate as well as you did. Today's episode is supported by BCS America. I've had my BCS 853 for eight years now, and it's the only tractor I use on my five acre market garden. One thing I marvel at to this day is how quickly I can switch between attachments. BCS has a quick coupling system, and I kid you not listeners, I can be mowing the grass with a front mounted flail mower, swing into my tractor shed and be back on the soil with my rear mounted tiller in less than a minute. Every time I do that, I think about the fresh hell I used to experience whenever I had to switch attachments on a four-wheel tractor. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors, attachments, and accessories, plus videos of BCS in action. That's bcsamerica.com. Hi, I'm Emily Heller, and I am a queer farmer living in the Lower Mainland. I'm currently saving money so that me and my wonderful partner, Christine, can hopefully buy a farm one day soon. Emily Halloran, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you, Emily. Um, You've come on today to talk about uh, your experience or experiences as a queer farmer, but I thought we could start by just talking about your experiences as a farmer. Um, Can you you talk a little bit about the kind of farming you do and um, with an end to being concise, just a little bit of the history of how you got into farming? Yeah, um, I actually, I'm a first-generation farming, so farming has not become, or did not become a part of my life really until I was about uh, 24 years old. Um, I was studying holistic nutrition, and I was like, I really want to help people with food. And I was like, but our food system is completely broken, and it's very hard for people to have access to healthy local food. And I was like, I'm going to be a farmer. And I like, set out to make that one of my goals, and I saved up my money, and I went over to Ireland and tried woofing there, and then I did some woofing in Spain and Portugal, and I was like, that's it. This is this is what I want to do. I want to be a farmer. And uh, when I came back from traveling, I went to the Tawasin Farm School, and I did the program farming program there for 10 months. And from there, I went to, uh, on an internship down to Cuba uh, and was studying sustainable agriculture down there and doing some work with effective microorganisms in uh, animal husbandry. Uh, and then I made my way back up, and I worked at the Tawasin Farm School for another year or so. Um, and then I've just been kind of bumming around on other farms. And currently I'm actually working on a, as a, a butcher because I want to be doing the animal husbandry on my farm, and I want to be able to do my own pottering and butchering on farm. Right. So it sounds like you've had quite an array of experiences as a, as a lot of first generation farmers have as they get into yeah. farming. But it, it also sounds like you have focused in on animals. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's very fair to say. Like earlier, kind of outside this official conversation, you were saying you and your partner are saving up for a farm. So like what I'm just curious what I know this changes from my own experience. I know this changes, but what is, you know, what what is what is. Within the realm of what's possible financially, what does your farm look like that you're dreaming of? Um, our farm looks like it would be probably about 20 acres and definitely have a forested area where I can do forest pigs. Uh, and then we'll do mixed vegetable production as well. My partner's 
a very, very good vegetable grower. So we'll focus on getting that um, that up and going, and then I'll be able to focus a little bit more on my animals as, you know, the farm becomes more self-reliant. And then, you know, I hope to have a little sausage company one day too. And is that located on this farm? What's that? Is that located on this fantasy farm, like a, like a sausage Who making? Knows? Yeah, yeah. Everything is located there, and most sausage factories there. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll that sounds really cool. So you you said forested pigs. Forested pigs. Have yeah. you have you worked with, much with those with with in that I've production system? Just I've just raised pigs like out on pasture, um, but as we started looking at land and stuff, it's it's hard to find a lot of like clear cut land. And so I'm like, well, we can have this much acres for doing our vegetable production, and I can raise pigs out in the forest. They do really good in the forest. Obviously, still supplement their diet with some grain here and there, but. Forced pigs, you know. The so, so the, the the goal towards forested pigs is both um, an interest and a passion, but also a depressing reality that that new generation, first generation farmers like us, can only dream of suboptimal land that we could possibly yeah. purchase. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's great. That's that's uh, sets us up nicely just to get a little more of a sense of where your interests lie, Emily. But I specifically asked you on to talk about your experience uh, as a as a queer farmer, and I, I would love to kind of talk about that with you now, if that's okay. Yeah. I just want to make it abundantly clear. So Emily Halloran, farmer and lesbian, correct? Oh, I, lesbian, but like, I would say no, more like queer. Like my, my, I would say that. My sexuality is fluid, and, you know, I'm currently with my partner, and my partner is a woman, and I, I you know, I hope to spend my life with her. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't identify as a lesbian because my past sexual experience have included men. Okay, fair so enough. So I prefer the term more queer. Okay, so Emmy, Emily Halloran, queer farmer. Is, is, Emily Halloran, is very proud queer. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so take us back before farming. Then again, in the same way you summarized your 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 farming, how you got into farming. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about life before farming, since it seems like what you want to talk about um, is is kind of the the positive outcome when your farming identity and your queer identity began to interact. If that makes sense. So maybe take us start us before then and take us into that. I like I grew up and I'm the youngest of three and I have two older brothers and then an older sister. And so I think I used to always equate my tomboyery to my two older brothers very much so being hard on me as two older brothers would be and so I don't know if I had to like take on a tomboy kind of role to protect and self preserve who I am. Um, but on the same note, like I think that I've always been a little bit different and like I wore shorts every day for 18 years, no matter the weather, and so I think part of me has always been queer in that way. I don't. I. 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 I I'm. I'm. This is so. So I guess outside my wheelhouse, I don't get the shorts reference. <laughs> you don't get the shorts reference. No. Do you wear shorts every day of the year? No. <laughs> I guess. I guess not. I no. No. But how does that relate to queerness? Um. I think just because, you know, you grow up and there's these gender roles and there's these gender norms and you're supposed to, as as a, a girl growing up, be going to the girl section and be wearing these dresses and wearing these certain colors. And growing up, I, you know, didn't, that didn't make me feel comfortable. Okay. Yeah, and I and, guess. 
generally speaking, and I know this, you can't you can't give a, an an easy clear answer. But like, did you grow up mainly in a family and social environment that was was supportive of your queerness once you presented it, or you know what I mean? Or 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 was it was, um, was it a challenging one? Like, how would you describe your experience of of your of that budding whenever when at whatever point you really started to explore that part of your identity? You know, how what what was your the environment like for you? I think yeah okay so I I first like had my first you know queer experience I guess where I you know hooked up with a, a woman when I was like twenty or twenty one and I was kind of like whoa like this is different like I didn't know that this is something I could be interested in. This isn't something I knew that I could kind of do. And I was like, cool, like I can do this. And at first I was kind of like, I don't know, like what will my friends think? What will my parents think? What will all these people think? And you're thinking about what all these other people will think and not necessarily think about what you feel about it. Um, And so when I like started, you know, kind of telling my friends, like they were pretty, like everyone was very, very cool about it. And I think also too, like I think back to growing up, my parents were actually very open and supportive of me kind of playing a more masculine gender role, like growing up, like I would shave with my dad and he was just like, I had my own little plastic razor to kind of shave with him. And I think my parents gave me more space to kind of understand and be myself as best as I could. And then they gave me that space. And I think that I'm definitely very fortunate for that, but I definitely grew up in a more sort of heteronormative upbringing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's so it sounds like in in when at the point you started to <clears throat> realize or explore this part of your identity i mean i it just what struck me about something you just said is, is just that you you almost right away ha- couldn't just think about what makes you feel good or how you feel but what others are thinking so you were definitely yeah. you were definitely dancing like people were watching yeah yeah and then I don't know. It's just like something weird. Like, I guess when I had that first experience when I was like 21 or 20, I kind of, it it opened my eyes up to being like, there's all these roles that we're supposed to be playing, but we're not always necessarily playing ourselves. And I guess it was that I kind of like rebelled against what was kind of expected of me or what I felt was expected of me to like kind of marry a man and have this whole white picket fence life. I was like, there's an alternative and I think that also kind of like kicks up the idea of like maybe there's an alternative life path. And at the time when I was 20 or 21, like I recently just dropped out of school. I didn't really know where I was going with my life. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I just started to see a kind of space where maybe I don't have to do what's outlined for me. And in a way that kind of started to lead me towards looking at farming as, as an opportunity and a life path. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please resist it if I'm doing so. But is, do, would you? Are you drawing a correlation like that? Almost having having to wrestle with this part of your identity, uh, did it allow you? Is that what you're saying? It kind of allowed you to then also consider career and lifestyle options that that you had yeah, to I that point not allowed yourself to do, to consider. Yeah, I think that it definitely like having uh, this experience like allowed me to take myself out of the constraints that I, I think that I were applied on to me and allowed me to see different career paths that I didn't think were possible. Right. Which, you know, talking to you about this now, like that's pretty huge. That's pretty great. Like, 
Yeah, totally. So, okay. So I think this is an important question before we move on to actually talking about the intersection between your queerness and your, and your farm and your farming say, which is, um, and you've sort of touched at this, but I want to, I want to seek some clarity here. By the time you started farming, were you fully, had you fully embraced the truest form of yourself that, that it sounds like now exists? Like, where were you in, 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 I'll call it a transitioned to to embracing a part of yourself that at some point you you were you hadn't embraced you, you know um so I, when i started really kind of embracing the farming i guess i was like two years into uh my relationship with my past partner who was a woman as well and um i think i still struggled a lot with my sexuality and being queer and i didn't necessarily fully feel comfortable in it um and, you know, I don't really, can't pinpoint exactly, like, kind of why, but I didn't feel fully accepting of myself because I guess in some way I didn't fully feel accepted by society. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, I, and I don't know if that's because I just didn't feel settled in where I was or where I was going, but, yeah, I didn't feel completely, like, settled into myself. And, and, and now is it fair to assume that compare that feeling to your present self? Are you, are you, have you reached a state of, of like much greater comfort with who you are and what you're doing? Yeah. I like, I'm a queer farmer and like, I, I love being able to say that. I say it with like such pride. Um, and I'm so lucky, like I'm very privileged to be able to speak so openly about that. Not a lot of people are able to speak so openly about it. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of when I started farming and really getting into it, I, I met more queer people, which was never a part of my, my life before. Like I didn't have any gay friends or queer friends until I started farming and I started to find a community of, of people who, you know, were like me and, and cared about the earth and cared about the community. And I just started to feel like I found a place where I belonged and not just in farming, but in terms of my sexual orientation as well. Right. And I mean, that, that brings to mind another related question. I was just wondering if, how, how often, if, if ever, um, in your day-to-day actions as a farmer, this part of your identity, identity comes into play, whether it should or it shouldn't. Yeah. I think that like, for me, if I'm on my own farm in my own sort of like space, it's like, I feel so empowered, um, as, as a farmer and as, as a queer farmer to just do whatever. And that like, no job is not a match for me. Like I can, I can kind of do any of the tasks on farm. And that's a very cool thing. Cause you know, growing up, it's like, you know, this is going back to gender roles, but it's like, you know, you do certain genders do this and certain genders do that. And on a farm that doesn't exist, you know, like every task is for every person. That makes sense. So another, another thing I wanted to ask you, Emily is, is, I mean, you, you, you're willing to come on the show and talk about it and which is a great thing. And so I'm also wondering if, if you have, if you have advice for, uh, for, for people like me who, who don't, you know, who, who, who have, you know, don't understand the queer farmer experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, advice for, for, Thinking back, I guess, to interactions you've had with 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 you know straight farmers like me, 
um <laughs> social advice i guess like whether and that can be and addressing oversensitivity which is what i tend to be guilty of um yeah. or under sensitivity do you have anything anything you want any public service I, I announcements just, i think it's just be open and don't constrain yourself and like you know, ask inquisitive questions, but maybe with that, like, almost, like, don't push boundaries, but, like, as long as you're coming from a positive place of wanting to learn and be more open, there's not, for me personally, I don't see anything wrong with asking the, the wrong kind of question, as long as you're trying to grow and get to a better place and find a better sense of understanding. And I also do, like, I really highly encourage doing, you know, research on the internet or watching documentaries about queer farmers or in, even engaging in some queer groups that might be in your city where you live. Any uh, any stereotypes uh, or, or presumptions that particularly annoy you? Um, the white male farmer. <laughs> <laughs> Just in terms of like, you know, what like... What do you mean, white male you, farmers <laughs> particularly annoy you? I mean you, George. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, you're great. I just mean, you know, it's really annoying anytime you see like an advertisement for, I don't know, any any sort of like thing. Even I was watching this like Patagonia pro promotional video about regenerative agriculture and like it was just mainly a bunch of older men, you know, presenting their thoughts and ideas. And it's like, you know, we need we need more voices to be heard and even like in the terms of all the like rock star farmers, they tend to be white dudes that are like teaching people how to be rock stars, sustainable farmers. And it's like, that's not actually representative of the majority of people doing the farming. Uh, so you're not seeing yourself represented, nor are you seeing a bunch of, of other perspectives. I, I'm seeing the majority of people who represent farming, not being represented. Yeah. 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 That's, and that's, 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 that's something that really needs to totally and and it's i'm it's you know i think it's also worth pointing out because for those of us who are in that um in that privileged uh group that does get represented it's kind of like being until it gets pointed out it i think it's like being a fish in water and not appreciating the water you know like yeah okay so emily i i said earlier that i i wanted to ask you to to talk a little bit more about your community like the queer community the queer farming community um so you're you've mentioned like you're based in the lower mainland kind of a metropolitan uh core of british columbia mm -hmm. so yeah tell me and my listeners a little bit about uh, like uh, with more in more specifics about that community that you that you're so grateful for and enjoy so much um, yeah, I, like I said, like just getting into the farming community, that's just kind of where I started to meet my queer friends. Like I didn't have any <laughs> queer friends growing up, you know, and even until like my mid twenties, I just had straight friends. And so getting into farming, like I worked at the farmer's market and with another girl and she became my best friend. And even through farming, I met some other farmers who have another friend who ended up being my partner. And I just, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is about the queer farming community in Vancouver, but it exists, and there's a lot of us, and it's, it's really beautiful to be a part of. Um, and I'm just so grateful for all the voices of all the, the, the queer farmers in this community. And I, the, the main reason I'm asking this follow-up question is because I was on Vancouver Island farming years ago for a while, and there was a queer farming uh association or group called the rainbow chard collective um yeah. and I'm, I'm just wondering like 
in your community, are, are there actually organized groups, whether they're social groups or, um, or, or, or advocacy groups that actually have structure to them? Um, I'm, I think that the Rainbow Charge Collective, the people who started them are actually over in Richmond now, mm-hmm. um, or we're part of it. There's some in Richmond now, but I, I think it's just, you know, it's hard to get a bunch of farmers together in most of the months of the year. Um, so I, even then I'm like not even too involved if there is like a community group and now I'm like, I should really go and be a part of one of these community groups. I just think of my, my friends that I've met through farming as my sort of like community group of queer farmers. Mm -hmm. And I guess, uh, I'll ask this question, but I, I don't think I, I'm going to guess that you're not, you're not in a great position to answer it, but like any, any advice, like you've acknowledged that you're in, you live in a part of the world where, um, that has been in general, like accepting of, of your queerness. And, but there may be listeners who are, who are in places where that's not necessarily the case. And is there any advice you can give them for finding, um, finding community? I I, I don't like, that's a tough question, but I, it doesn't hurt hurt to ask. I'm very, I think that's a very tough kind of question. Um, to answer, I, I think, too, on, like, my low days, I do find such community in being with the plants that I'm growing, and there's just such an acceptance that comes just from working with the earth, and I find that it's just, like, so empowering. So even if you, you know, feel like you have your support group around you, you know, there's there's all these plants that care and support and love you as much as you give that love back to them. And as corny as that is, like, on very tough days for me that just really fuels and and can help keep me safe within my space uh so kind of like the the plants may be also watching you dance but but they're not judging your moves exactly exactly emily halloran thanks so much for for joining me i i've really enjoyed the conversation and i i really appreciate the time oh my pleasure gay old time with you jordan (laughs) well said This episode is supported by the British Columbia Small Scale Meat Producers Association, a nonprofit focused on removing systemic barriers that impede small scale meat producers from competing fairly in the marketplace. Smallscalemeat.ca. One member of this association is Fresh Valley Farms, which sent me a huge box of meat for this sponsorship. Steve and Annalise, thank you. I've been enjoying everything in the Homesteader box that you gave me. If you're in BC and want to check them out, head to freshvalleyfarms.ca. All right, Ruminant listeners, I need your help. For quite a while now, I've wanted to do two companion episodes, one called State of Market Gardening 2019 and the other called State of Livestock Production 2019. And here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you if you are a full-time farmer in either of those two disciplines who depends on your farming for your income and who considers yourself successful. And the reason I want to talk to you is I want to learn about observations you're making about how your industry or the part of your industry you're in is changing. Particularly, I want to know about how the marketing part of what you do is changing. Have you had to adapt how you sell what you produce to changing markets? Where are the opportunities coming from one, two, three, four years down the line? Or to put it another way, 
How would you advise a new farmer doing the same kind of production as you if they came to you and asked you for advice on how to sell their product? For each episode, I hope to feature a few voices who can talk about how they think market conditions are changing, whether in a positive or a negative sense. Does that make sense? So if you think you have something to contribute, I would love to talk to you. Here's what I would do. Record a quick voice memo on your smartphone with a summary of your observation or observations, and then text it to 250-767-6636 or email it to me, editor at theruminant.ca. I really hope to hear from some of you. I would love to produce these episodes. Thanks. All right, folks, two segments left, and they're both really good. Next up, you're going to hear an essay by my dear friend, Susan Nelson. Susan and I used to farm and live together on the same property, and I consider her a wonderful, exemplary human being, except when she decides to show her affection for me by tugging on my beard hairs, which I really don't like, Susan. Here's Susan Nelson. I hated farmers. It was a long and winding road to being what might be called one myself. In my corner of Virginia, in the U.S. South, growing up in the land of peanuts and pigs, I knew I was doomed. Early on, I realized that there was something different about me, and along with that understanding came the knowledge that the difference was dangerous. Bless my mother, who tried her best to shelter me, but her response to my question, I have a girl's body and a boy's brain, what do I do? was a shell-shocked stare at the floor, and I'm embarrassed, don't think about it, it'll go away. That's when, at nine years old, I understood that adults don't know everything and certainly don't always know what to do. Except for Grandma Kemp. In the 1930s photo on the wall I wake up to every morning, She's in a pasture, squatting beside a Jersey cow and squirting milk into the mouth of a cat. Hanging around the cow, a couple of chickens are busy being chickens. Not pictured, but not far away, was a big vegetable garden, grapes, and fruit trees. It was her and her animals' labor that produced most of what the family ate. She showed me how it was possible for even a woman to be independent, strong, and a farmer. Another of her gifts to me was an unstated, mysterious feeling of recognition and understanding that I could sense but couldn't tell what it was until years later when I came out to her and she said, well, maybe that's been my problem all these years. As I trod that agonizingly slow road through adolescence, I used a number of coping mechanisms to survive life alone in the closet. Our house was in a pine forest on the edge of a salt marsh, and the closest neighbors were a ways down the road. The forest and the marsh, and being outside with numerous wild and domesticated animals, was my salvation. As a matter of necessity, we all worked in the big vegetable garden, but animals were my joy and solace, especially before I turned 13. At that magical, morbid age, hormones at the ready, I mustered my defense. I read my fundamentalist Christian father's Bible three times. 
and became an expert on hypocrisy. Though my father was a machinist, the church we went to was largely populated by farmers and people associated with them. While half the people living in the county were black, the first time I had any contact with an African-American was at 13, when public school systems were forced to integrate. My own vague fears of personal danger for being different sharpened into cold clarity when I saw people on the news being harassed, beaten, and killed for saying that the color of their skin should not determine their access to civil rights. Classmates bragged about their KKK fathers. Much of the violence that went on in the South was instigated in rural areas and in my personal belief, if not direct experience, by white farmers. I did my best in church and especially with my father to point out that Jesus would not like these attitudes, that in fact, Jesus in his time was a rebel against such ways of thinking and behaving. Behind all my outspoken bravado against injustice and my righteous indignation was, of course, fear and anger. I saw how short the distance was between white farmers' violence and epithets directed at people who were not white, and the responses they would have for me if they only knew who I was. So understandably, rural life, farm life, farm people were a major threat to my sense of safety and well-being. In seeking a refuge, I went to the library and scoured the telephone books of major cities on the West Coast. There it was, the Lesbian Resource Center, listed under social services in the yellow pages of Seattle. I had found a home. I escaped Virginia with no physical harm, due most likely in no small part to the fact that I only opened the closet door crack under safe circumstances. City life provided healing of the sort I needed. I found a family of friends and learned what love and community means. No more closets for me in the city. But I missed living on the ground, surrounded by animals and plants. Then one day, I was invited to go to Lopez Island in the San Juans of Washington State. It was the first time I felt safe as an adult, identifiable lesbian woman in a rural public place. Lopez is a farming community, and many of the farmers were out lesbians who were not simply feeding the family, but much of the population on the island. What a revelation. I could have community and country life too. It took close to 20 years of little steps and big dreams, but I did eventually live a farming life of sorts. For seven years, I was fully occupied with cows and cheese. My partner grew flowers and raised ducks. In a small community, we rented a cabin and some space for our animals and garden. Though not big on public displays of sexual attraction, we never hid our affection for each other, and anyone who had a conversation with either of us soon got the picture. No one made any snarky comments to our faces. We never heard any secondhand commentary either. A few folks asked direct questions out of curiosity and as an expression more of wanting to understand than any ill will or fear. After years of organizing and hard work by many people, things changed and continued to change, of course, both in the world 
and in me. I'm very thankful to all those who made change possible. I consider myself extremely fortunate to have had the support to arrive at a place in my being that doesn't require a closet to feel safe. And I realize and I'm grateful that I live in a place where my being a lesbian does not automatically put me in a life-threatening situation, farmer or not. I hear even Virginia has improved, but there are still places in the world where being an out queer person may prove fatal. Here on southern Vancouver Island, I like to think that Grandma would feel right at home and that she could see a bit of herself in me. You can pull my beard hairs all you want, Susan. I miss you. Thanks again. All right, so I've got one more perspective to share with you today. But speaking of perspectives, I really want to make a note that every guest today in their own way, emphasize that theirs is only one perspective of many, many perspectives on this topic and that they don't claim to represent the queer perspective in farming. All of my guests in their own way also emphasize that they feel lucky and privileged as far as their lives have gone and that so many others have experienced so much worse. The reason I'm saying this is because I've had to edit these recordings like crazy to fit them all into today's episode. So I just know that inevitably one or more of these uh, guests' comments on that part of it may have been left out. And I don't want to make it look like they didn't acknowledge what I just said because they did. So with that said, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with our last guest. I'll let her provide her own bio and then you'll hear our conversation. Talk to you at the end. Hi, I'm uh, Jenna Jacobs. I'm the co-founder of La Ferme Cooperative au Chant qui Chante in Quebec. We're about an hour north of Montreal, and our production is split between vegetables and eggs. Jenna Jacobs, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant Podcast. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here. Jenna, you've, you've graciously agreed to, to join me on the show to, to talk about... Um, your perspective as uh, a farmer who is also a transgender person, and uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm producing an episode on on how you know those two parts of your identity uh, intersect, and I think in order to do that, we, we need to kind of go through a short history of both. Um, so I, I think I think we should start with the farming. <laughs> this is a farming podcast. I'm just wondering uh, if we can talk a little bit about. I guess your history of getting into farming. Can you can you give us a little summary of of um, how you how you came to be where you are right now? Yeah. Um, so about eight years ago, in uh, in 2012, I was working on my my doctoral um, thesis uh, in in biology, uh, in particular like forest ecology, and I I was not very impressed with the the research culture at the time. It was under the Harper government, and there was uh, working in 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 governmental organizations seemed less appealing to me. The more I spent in university seemed less appealing to me. I, I always pictured myself working in forests, and the longer I did my education, the more I found myself working in downtown Montreal. So I had an opportunity near the end of my programs, especially near the end of my funding for my program, to join two other women to, to start a cooperative farm. And at the time, I thought that sounded great, and I would give it a try. One of the both the other women had had quite a bit more experience with agriculture than I did, um, but I came in with a skill set uh, of mechanics, uh, carpentry, plumbing, and all these other peripheral uh, skills that 
uh, to make these small farms work. Yeah, basically you were a dream member of a cooperative farm <laughs> from your partner's point of view. Yeah, I mean, like me and, and like the, there was one other woman that worked full-time. and She had all the crop experience. I had all the, the machinery experience. And, and we actually worked pretty good together. We we kind of developed this farm. And then the third member worked part-time, and, and she came in with a lot of the administration and finance skills. So we were a pretty good team to, to start the farm. Uh, people have gone on to do other projects, and, and as a cooperative farm, we, we do have numbers come and go um, more than some other cooperative farms I've, I've interacted with. Um, so we, we do kind of find ourselves in a rebuilding phase often, um, but we're still going, and, and I still enjoy it. So Jenna, what's what's something that what's something you're growing on the farm that that you're kind of particularly interested in or proud of or just kind of like yeah would 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 highlight uh, as far as your farming goes? I feel like we do pretty well on this farm with the the warm weather crops, the tomatoes and eggplants and peppers. But I feel like last year especially we did really well with our melons, and and I feel like melons are such a, a showpiece in a CSA basket or on a farmers market stand. And I feel like we, last year, we finally got a really nice system for growing really nice melons for a lot of the season. All right. Well, that's particularly interesting to me because I'm terrified of melons, mostly because I find it hard to get them harvested at the right time. Yeah. Uh, so why, why, since you've said that, I've got to ask you for just, just any one tip on, me, on melon production. Well, if it's, if it's harvesting, get like, like the full slip, like a full slip cantaloupe. So the, the ones that detach from the vine when they're ready. Sorry, are you saying I, find a variety that does that, or are you saying that's that's when you know? No, that's it's a variety specific. So not all of our varieties do that, but we do the the cantaloupe. I think it's the halona. That basically you like grab it and it just falls off the vine, and then you know it's ready. Oh, I really need that. I didn't. But, that was. But a, it's ready, right? You have to then get it to an eater. Yeah, where you have to like make sure you're there every day, or else for us the raccoons come. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> okay, and, and that's been one of the battles. So we we surround our, our melons with an electric fence. <laughs> I put up a three wire electric fence with a big charge on it. Yeah, you you and all the marijuana farms. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, full slip. That's the term I need to look for in my melon varieties. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Wow, I'm glad that came up. Thanks, Jenna. I'll just add one more thing. Um, as a co-op, we are still looking for new members. I don't feel like we're saturated at all. So this might be a good time to put a shout out for other farmers, other, other farmers that are drawn to maybe a more LGBT farm that, uh, that we're always looking for new members. So we're open to that kind of contact. Oh, cool. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that if, if only cause I didn't really establish, like tell, tell us where you are in the world and the community that your farm is located in. Um, we are in Quebec, uh, right between Montreal and Ottawa, or Montreal and Gatineau. So we're about an hour from Montreal, an hour and 15 minutes from Ottawa. And we always thought that we might be able to service both markets. We used to sell meat to a restaurant in Ottawa, but we've really kind of stayed out of Ottawa for the most part. Um, all the founding members had, had previously lived in Montreal, so our communities were there. And that seemed like the easiest place to, to start a basket program. Definitely a rural area that you live in. Yeah, it, like where I am is definitely rural, but we're so close to town that it's it's pretty amazing. Right, kind of the best of both worlds. Cool. Okay, so so Jenna, that's 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 kind of one half of the intersection we're going to explore. I was hoping you could, to the extent you're comfortable, kind of summarize um, 
your kind of your personal history, you know, as re, as regards your your gender identity, and um, I, I suppose I don't know where to ask you to start, except probably if if you're comfortable, like at the, the point when you were young, when you realized there was something different about you. Yeah, so I feel like I have a pretty typical story of most of the trans people I've met. I felt uncomfortable in my body from a very young age. This was maybe one of my my earliest memories was not feeling comfortable in my body. And that was quickly followed by by the memory of of feeling like it wasn't okay that I had this discomfort, that this discomfort wasn't normal. So I quickly learned how to hide this discomfort. I was quite closed about it as a child. I wasn't very expressive to my parents. I assumed my parents wouldn't be very open to it. This was in the 80s, and there wasn't a lot of role models or a lot of exposure of trans people in the media. Um, So I pretty much went until I was about 25 years old before I told anybody about these feelings. Um, And then I slowly started exploring my gender. Um, Eventually, when I moved to Montreal, it was partly so I could continue in, in this exploration. And in Montreal is, is where I first met another trans person, and I was 31 years old. And it really opened my eyes about the possibilities of what could be done. I started, um, I started with a therapist, and I started seeing some medical doctors uh, and a whole host of other people to help me through it. Um, and it quickly became obvious to me that, that transitioning um, to be, to, to, presenting as as a woman was going to make me a lot happier in my life and it really has and so about 10 years ago now I made that that switch I um where I I started presenting full-time and and there was a part of my life uh, where I was presenting male part of my life and female part of my life and it was pretty difficult I used to always call like when I presented male I was in disguise felt like a disguise. I wore lots of hoodies and hats and stuff because I, I, I felt like I needed to hide myself. But then um, shortly after I transitioned is when I met this, this farming group um, and we started this cooperative farm and then I was able to, to pretty much relocate here um, presenting full-time as, as female. And it was like kind of started this new life for me here in this new community and, and it's been really great. Jenna, I'm, I'm wondering... What was the biggest difference if we take, I don't know, I'm just going to zero in on your 20s based on what you just told me, but like in, in, helping, in helping cisgender people like me understand your perspective, what was the biggest difference between how you experienced the world and described yourself and how others would describe you or experience you as, you know, as, as, as far, as far as your gender? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the way I experienced my gender, there's been a few analogies that, that have really, like, spoke to me that people talk about um, being a trans person prior to transition. Um, what I like is, like, holding a ball underwater, like, that you're always trying to hold this ball under the water and not let it surface. Mm-hmm. So you're always kind of focused on this. You can't kind of forget about it um, because you don't, you're scared that ball's going to surface and people are going to know who you really are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um the other analogy I like is the white noise, that it's like there was this white noise in my ear all the time for my whole life until I transitioned. 
that suddenly went away. And there was this white noise that I had to deal with. It was always present. You know, it made me, it, it, it made me depressed. It made me angry. Um, and then all of a sudden it went away and life was different. So, okay. So moving on kind of to the intersection between these two parts of you, um, can we talk about your expectations heading into farming as a transgender person? Um, like how did you, as you, as you kind of made this decision to move away from academia and into farming, did you have preconceived notions about how these, this core part of you and this potentially new part of you as a farmer would interact and what the experience would be like? Yeah. And it was actually, I remember very specifically talking to my therapist about this, that I was in a, like I was in academia. It was, you know, a pretty progressive place. People were pretty accepting. People didn't seem very judgmental. And I was going to this place that, that had at least the reputation of being, uh, a little bit more of a, an old boys club, um, where I expected to, to, to maybe see more discrimination, um, based on my gender presentation. But the reality really hasn't shown that very much. I've been pretty impressed, even in the small town that I live in, how, how quickly people are to accept me, um, how, like, how many, really how many old men I, I, I interact with on a weekly basis, either at the hydraulic shop or this morning at the metal shop. And people are nice to me. People, like, people treat me with a lot of respect, and, and I don't find a lot of just that I'm being discriminated against because of my gender presentation. So Jenna, why you must have thought about your expectation of, of intolerance in the rural community you're in. Um, and then the reality that you really haven't, you've been pleasantly surprised and haven't really experienced that. Um, how have you, how have you explained that to yourself? Like why, 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 why didn't you, I guess? And I, I ask that just because I think many people, including myself, would have assumed that in, in moving to a rural community in Quebec, you would experience um, some intolerance or a lot more than you have. So, so why, why, why haven't you essentially like what, what's, are you just really lucky? Is it a really special community or, or how would you, how would you explain it? I think it's a combination of things as a, I mean, as a trans person, I do like, I can blend in, in, in most communities. So I, I feel like one of the differences here is like when I go to the hydraulic shop, am I, identified as a trans woman or just as a woman. And I think both those identities come with their own set of challenges mm -hmm. when you walk into a hydraulic shop. I don't see a lot of other women um, clients in the hydraulic shop. I, I feel quite lucky that, that two of the employees at the hydraulic shop are women. Um, so I think there's those things. I think I kind of go about moving around as, as being openly trans. Um, I, I don't, I don't necessarily bring it up in conversations, but I also just don't, I, I have a hard time assuming that, that some people just, like some people seem to know, I can see like, I can see the looks, um, where people are like at least questioning it in their head. And even my, even if I have a ambiguous gender presentation, I think it, it brings its own set of, of, of preconceived notions with it. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I found when I'm here is that I, I can navigate this, this world of, 
you know, to this, the male-dominated part of, of farming, um, I I think because I was I was socialized still as male, so I can walk into these shops, and even though my presentation might be different, I think a lot of my action, the way I speak, um, is what people are are used to in these types of environments. Um, so I think people feel comfortable w- with me quicker than maybe if I came into this environment um, as a city person and also didn't come with this this male social socialization. Jenna, do you feel, have you thought about whether being a transgender farmer gives you any special advantages or superpowers? Like anything, anything that you kind of benefit from either because of the total, the sum total of your past experience or just, or anything like that, like any, any leg up or, or thing you're grateful for about, about this intersection? I alluded to it earlier in our conversation, this idea of being socialized male. I think compared to cisgendered women, I feel like I was given this like superpower that I know how to talk to old men um, in a way that makes them feel maybe more comfortable in the type of environments I talk to them in. Um, and I'm often surprised at how how many resource people I I use in the, on farming that are that are in their 60s, for example, or even in their 70s, um, to come work on my tractor, the guy at the hydraulic shop, the guy at the tire shop, the guy at the, the welding shop. And it's these type of people that often I'll go in and I feel like I'll walk into a room full of men and they'll all look at me funny. And then the way I feel like it's the way I can talk to them makes them feel um, a little bit more comfortable with me mm-hmm. than I think some other cisgender women would experience, even if even with the, the same level of knowledge I have going into it. And I think this is just a strict socialize the way we socialize little boys versus little girls, um, the way people are exposed and and. I, I felt like I was like a spy in this in this male world for so long that it gives me this ability to move through that that, that male dominated world a little bit easier. And, and and I'm not saying this is probably true for everyone, but I, I think it is. Like I, I think I want to recognize it. It is a generalization. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like one of the the easiest ones is like the the way women are typically socialized to not challenge men especially older men to stand up like to, to be confident in your knowledge isn't social socialized in women the way it is in men and what we often end up seeing in men is that they become overconfident in their knowledge and they want to explain to everybody else how to do everything mm-hmm. the term has come up as mansplaining um which i think can work against you but it's also the way people interact with each other and, and I think that's part of this the socialization that that's maybe part of my superpower in these settings okay well why don't we finish with uh, a little bit of transgender 101 you know try and try and, and, and contribute to to more inclusivity uh, we kind of did you and I did this ahead of the interview you kind of gave me some 101 I'm just wondering if you have um, if you could share some some basics of like for for people in terms of how how to make a, a transgender friend or colleague feel more included, and just certain questions or topics to avoid or behaviors to avoid, w- would you mind 
doing that for listeners? Yeah, no, not at all. I think that's a, that's, that's a good thing to include in this, in this podcast. Um, the first one that comes up for me is pronouns and, and pronouns can be difficult. Um, but they're also really quite important to a lot of trans people. And that's not saying they're important to every trans pe- person, but I know it, it's like an attack on my identity when people do, don't use female pronouns for me. Um, it's not, it's never clear if it's intentional or not. Um, but getting somebody's pronouns right is, is important here on, on my farm. Um, often what we do when we have a new group of people, um, when all the employees start, we'll go around and introduce ourselves and also share what, what our preferred pronouns are. So that's an easy way to do. And Cisgender people can do that too. Even if it's a room that you think is full of cis people, it's a nice thing to do to do that round and include it with your your gender presentation or with your with your presentation of your name and maybe where you come from with your preferred pronouns. And and maybe it's going to be obvious after the circle, but just having that inclusivity, um, I think, will add a lot um, for any 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 trans people that might that that might be there on the farm um interacting maybe there's other people that that the gender presentation isn't very obvious that you're inter- interacting with at a conference or farm visits it's pretty easy to avoid gendering people um you know if you can imagine there's a group of three people and and someone wants to refer to the third person um we do it all the time in language we we refer to a person as a person um, instead of a he or a she or a him or a her um, refer to people by their name, ask them their name, um, instead of referring to, um, you know, referring to, to a him, you can use the name Jordan or the podcast host, um, is another easy way. Listening, often there'll be someone that'll use the uh, agenda and that knows the person better that you're with. And that's another way to, to pick up on, on proper pronoun usage. Um, the other one is trans people never like to talk about, um, their life in too much detail before they transitioned. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to talk about their name. Um, nobody, like, I shouldn't say nobody. I really never identified as male, especially now it's, it's really clear to me that even as a young child, I was, I still... Like, I identified as female, but people um, treated me as male. I had a male presentation, but I, I still felt female back then. Um, there's more and more, like, literature and science that, that supports that idea that, that, you know, even, like, talking about biological sexes, I feel like I'm also biologically female, mm-hmm. even though at one time in my life I produced sperm. I, I, I feel that's possible. Um, so this idea that I changed my gender, I didn't change my gender ever. I changed my gender presentation. Right, right. I think that's a, a subtle but important difference. And so for that reason, big no-no, you know, to, to say to you in conversation, to, re- to refer to the time in your life when you were male, because that in, you never were, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I wasn't a man that turned into a woman or a man that, that changed into a woman. I just, all I did was change my presentation. Um, but I've always identified. 
and it wasn't always clear to me how I identified, but through through exploration, through meditation, through therapy, it became more and more clear to me what what was plaguing me so much in my life and, and these, this discomfort I had felt my whole life. Jenna, is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Another important point I, I feel is that I come from a place of privilege, and I don't think my story reflects trans people in generally, especially trans people that come from less privilege than I do. I grew up in middle-class suburbia. Um, I was identified as a white male um, as, a, as a child and a young adult, and all the privilege that, that came with that. So it made several parts of my life history and my transition a lot different um, than someone that came from um, lower class, um, people of color, um, often have quite a bit more challenges. I also have a lot of parental support. Both my parents are quite supportive. Um, my partner's parents, they're both supportive, supportive as well. So I think that's also, it's parental support for trans children is so crucial. And so many trans children don't get that. I hear story after story of people that come out and lose family, lose parental support. And I think that puts them in a lot harder position than anything I've ever had to deal with. Jenna Jacobs, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast to share your perspective and your story. It was really interesting and educational, and I really appreciate it. No problem, Jordan. It was nice to be here. Well, that's it. That was one epically long episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. I sure enjoyed recording it. I, I really enjoyed talking all today's guests, and I just want to thank them all one more time. And uh, for, the, for the conversations that they, they shared with me and, and also Susan for that wonderful essay. So look, I'm back to a brief run of episodes again. Last time around, I dumped them all uh, together for the first time. This time, they're all going to come out in fairly short order, but uh, it could be as seldom as once a week for the next few weeks. So stay tuned for more episodes. I've got a couple more in the hatch, and I'm working on the rest right now as we speak. And uh, I really enjoyed the last run. I hope you did too. It was nice to get some feedback from you. I'm probably going to talk about some of that feedback in the uh, days and weeks to come. And that's it. I'll talk to you soon, everybody. Happy farming, gardening, whatever. Right outside of the cities, reaches will live off chestnut spring water and peaches will own nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. No, but I have a boyfriend. Oh. with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands. I've been doing a lot of thinking, some real soul searching, and here's my final resolve. 
I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.